0: Oh, Friday night, stop, stop. Guys, I am so glad to be here. Can we jump straight into it? That sound good? They only gave me 35 minutes and I wanna preach for an hour, so we're gonna see if we can meet in the middle somewhere. Tonight, what I wanna do is talk about Nehemiah chapter nine, um, Aristotle, the movie Interstellar, and a really good God who remains with us in the midst of our deepest failures. Does that sound like something we can do? Yes. Okay, before we jump into it, let me pray over us. God, what I keep hearing from you tonight is that you you have something for us. But before we even get to that, you want us to know that we are safe with you. That you can be trusted that we can come to you with everything we've been carrying and sit before you and open the scriptures and you have something for us. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would make yourself incarnate to us in this space tonight, that we would leave different people, that we would leave transformed, that you would renew our minds, that you would challenge and convict our our actions, that you would push us into places that you have been but are inviting us to go deeper with you. So God, would you do it? We pray all of this with a bark. (laughs) And in faith, in the name of Jesus, amen. Wow, impeccable timing impeccable timing. Okay, here we go. So listen, every story has a flow to it. Every story has movements to it. You can think of some of your favorite stories, books you've read, movies you've seen, plays you've gone to, albums you've listened to. They all have this sort of mindful movement through things. Thousands of years ago, a man by the name of Aristotle, a brilliant philosopher, he was attempting to sort of put movement to how a story best unfolded. He wrote a popular work. Some of you, if you studied things like this, know it's called Poetics. And he talked about the way in which a story unfolds, the way a Greek tragedy or or an epic takes place and how it moves. And this brilliant, brilliant man, who I'm not suggesting is not, but he did come to this conclusion that all great stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. My three-year-old also said that recently, so I don't know. I don't know who's the brightest, Aristotle or my child. Preach. He said there's a beginning, there's a middle, and an end. The way he described it is as if every great story is like a knot, and what happens in the first part of the story is a character is sort of examining the knot, the tension. In the world in which they live, in the middle of the story is where action begins to happen and they slowly begin to turn the knot around and look at it and see what's going on with it and then in the end is resolution, it's when the knot comes completely untied. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. However, what I would propose to you tonight is that the stories we sort of remember the most, the stories that haunt us the most, the stories that hang around with us, I think this is true in culture as well, are the stories that employ a storytelling trick called a plot twist. Some of you can remember, I think the most popular version of this is probably for many of you, the first time you saw the movie The Sixth Sense. And I know most of you are Christians, so you don't watch any movies like that. But for the rest of you who are, normal people, you remember this movie. You remember seeing it, and there's this moment where you're like, oh my goodness, I won't give the plot away, because people get so bent out of shape with spoilers even for movies that are 25 years old. But you remember what happened. It's that moment where you're in the midst of a story and using Aristotle's metaphor, you realize that the knot you are looking at may not even be a knot after all. Maybe something completely different. The story that I think does this the best, or at least my favorite, is the movie Interstellar. Any fans in the room tonight? A few, okay. I watched it this week to sort of refresh my memory. You know sermon research and whatnot. And if you haven't seen it, let me unpack the plot real quick. Earth is dying, a nice way to start. Not literally, in the movie, Earth is dying. A man named Cooper is recruited by NASA to go out with a team of astronauts and attempt to find a new planet that is livable for humanity. In order to do this, he leaves behind his friends and his family and his home and this Earth that is falling to pieces. Meanwhile, his 12-year-old daughter that he leaves behind as she grows up and matures, she begins to solve the equation of gravity which they need to do in order to get these mass millions of people off of the planet. Now the tension of the story lies in that his daughter grows up believing that her dad has just abandoned her. Her dad has left to go on this mission to fulfill his dream and his calling, but has left her and her brother and their family behind. She grows up with bitterness and resentment and rage towards her dad. The unraveling of the story, though, is that the world is not saved, but they find a new home for them. But the plot twist in it is that his daughter, who has spent all this time attempting to solve the equation of gravity, solves it with the help of what I'll call a ghost. This thing, this being that speaks to her through, like, books that fall off of the shelf. And she retraces her history and what she discovers I'm gonna cry, is that it wasn't a ghost. It was her dad moving through space and time attempting to communicate with her. It's this big idea that what is happening is that love is the only thing that can move throughout the universe to save humanity. If I'm not preaching right now, I don't really know what I'm doing. (laughs) There's this moment in the movie where it all comes to light and you realize that it was her dad this whole time that he had not, in fact, abandoned her. He had loved her so much that he went through space and time to help her figure it out. This is a plot twist. Now, what does any of that have to do with the book of Nehemiah? I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) Nehemiah is this story of the cupbearer to the king, who is cut to the heart when he hears that the wall in his city, that the city that his people are from, and their, their hometown has been destroyed. It's been ravaged. It's been pillaged. It's been burnt to ashes in certain places. And so Nehemiah due to his favor with the king and his recruitment of his resources and everything else, he sets out on this mission, this partnership with God to help rebuild a wall. And that is how we typically talk about the story of Nehemiah, am I right? It's the story of a man who has received this massive calling and he goes out to rebuild this wall. A problem happens though. The book is 12 chapters long, amen. The book is 12 chapters long, but the wall is done being built by chapter six. And what begins to happen as many of you know, I heard Daniel's messages from the last few weeks is the people begin to come back into the city. 40,000 people or so begin to find their way back into the city. They begin to open up the scriptures in the middle of the city and read them out loud and worship begins to break out. And all of a sudden festivals from their ancestors begin to show back up and they're remembering their days in Egypt and the journey to get into the promised land. All of these things are beginning to unfold and you quickly have this inkling as you read it that maybe this story is not about a wall at all. That this story maybe isn't about Nehemiah's visionary leadership after all. This story wasn't about this massive construction project because what happens when all these people get back into the city confession starts breaking out. If you have a Bible, Nehemiah chapter 9 verses 1, it says, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting, wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood." where they were and read from the book of the, of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. So the wall's been rebuilt. People are starting to funnel back in. Hey, we're back home. Things are gonna be great. Man, we're so glad Nehemiah rebuilt this wall. That's all we were really looking for him to do. And yet they're reading the scriptures together and celebrating together. In fact at one point in the story it says not since the days of Joshua has a celebration like this taken place with God's people and then as they begin to confess out loud what starts to be proclaimed over the people is this I'm going to sort of skim through some verses here you'll track with us on the screen it'll probably be easier for you verse 9 uh, verse 7 excuse me you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham you saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. Let's keep scrolling through these verses. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and against all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians had treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You see what's starting to happen. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone, a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them by a pill, with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. Verse 13, you came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You see what's happening. He's retracing the story of Israel, all the way back through Abraham and Egypt. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. And then then again, they became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But here's the thing, you are a forgiving God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who you brought up out of Egypt or when they committed awful blasphemies. Jumping ahead a few verses. For 40 years, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. We can stop there. I think you guys get the idea. What begins to happen as confession breaks out is their story is being recast in front of them. They are not simply being told that they have failed. They're being told and reminded of the places that they failed, but of the people that they were always supposed to be. They are being given a picture from God through their story of who it is that they are supposed to be. Friends, listen, what if Nehemiah was not about building a wall at all? In fact, I'm gonna say it to us tonight this way, and you can write this down. The story of Nehemiah was not about God restoring a wall, it was about God restoring a people. This is what happens in Nehemiah. God wasn't using Nehemiah to restore a wall, he was using him to restore a people. And here's the difficult thing the primary way that that restoring happens is through repentance. It's not through an abundance of blessings. It's not through God sending them little love letters. It's through repentance. This is what happens for them. When I say the word repentance, that may be foreign to some of you. When I say the word repentance, I'm talking about the act of us going before God and acknowledging the places that we have failed, acknowledging the places that we have messed up, acknowledging the places where sin has shown up, but what we're also doing when we approach God in repentance is we are, we are giving him those things and allowing him to then heal us. This is what happens. Now for many of us, we hear the word repentance and we sort of think about the way we think about sin, which we think of it in strictly moral terms, right? Like I did this thing, it was wrong, I should say sorry to someone. The way that the Israelites thought about sin was they compared it to what was, called, what was called out of them in the book of Deuteronomy, that they are to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, with all of their strength. So repentance was necessary when Israel found themselves constantly not loving the Lord their God in such a way. In fact, the language that's often employed when it's talked about is that what they did if God was over there is they would quickly turn their backs on him. They would build an idol to worship instead. And so the word for repentance for Israel was the word shuv. Let me hear you say shuv. So repentance was not to say sorry to God. It was to make a full turn back to him. To shuv was to completely turn around. So here's what I'm gonna propose for us tonight. I know that we're all good church people, but what I believe to be true is that there are some of us in this room who are still deeply embedded in sin, who are still walking it out, consciously or subconsciously. There are some of us who are carrying around shame. There are some of us who have behaviors that are sinful that we have chosen to ignore and not acknowledge. And what God is inviting us into tonight, it's gonna be fun, (laughs) is to turn back to him in full repentance. So with the few minutes that I have left, what I wanna do is paint a picture for you of what we see about repentance in the scriptures in Nehemiah chapter nine. The first thing that I see is simply this, that repentance is often initiated when we hear the words or word of God. Think about what happens this moment. They get back, gathered together, Nehemiah 9, chapter 3. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord for how long? A quarter of the day. I know Daniel sort of teed this up for me because this happens in chapter 8 as well. They read from the book of the law for a quarter of the day. Now, if you're like me, you struggle to read from the Bible for more than like 30 minutes a day to sit down and devote a bunch of time and go, God, okay, a quarter of the day? Is that six hours? I don't... God, I got stuff to do, I don't, how am I gonna check my Instagram if I'm reading the Bible, it's not gonna work. The idea that we would commit ourselves to such a thing seems preposterous. I would actually propose that for many of us, the problem is not that we don't read the Bible, the problem is how we read the Bible. The problem is this, in our culture, we tend to read the scriptures and any passage that has any conviction attached to it, we tend to think about everyone else. We tend to think about all those other people who gossip. We tend to think about all those other people who covet their neighbor's things or their friend's Tesla's. Not speaking from personal experience. We tend to think about all those other people who cheat and steal in their business doings. We tend to think about all those other marriages that are falling apart. See, we don't tend to read the scriptures with ourselves in mind when we hit those convicting passages. We tend to think about everybody else. But the scripture, this story at least, invites us, as we engage with the scriptures, to not consider the other people out there, but to consider ourselves. In fact, I think of a great quote by a pastor, his name's Scott Sauls, If, if you don't follow him on Twitter or Instagram, you absolutely should, but he has this great quote that says this, can we throw it up on the screen? He says, if reading the Bible causes me to scrutinize others more than I scrutinize myself, I am not reading the Bible correctly. This is so true. If the way I read the scriptures causes me to judge everyone else, but it doesn't cause me to look internally, it doesn't cause me to look at my own behaviors, then I'm not probably reading the scriptures correctly. When we choose to read the scriptures in a way that look inward, it allows conviction and formation to happen. When we choose to read them in a way that is only outward and judgmental, only one thing can come out of it, self-righteousness. Which, I will remind you, is probably the thing Jesus railed on the most. Jesus had very little to say to sinners. He had a lot to say to the religious people. In fact, so much so that one day, he told a story in the Gospel of Luke, Luke, look, to some, who were confident of their own righteousness. Look at Luke. And look down on everyone else. You know people like this? Are they sitting next to you right now? Don't look at them. (laughs) The really nice, good people, they get everything right. And every time you talk to them, you just kind of start to feel bad about yourself. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, And the other, a tax collector, the Pharisee, stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. You ever prayed that? The robbers, the evildoers, the adulterers, the Republicans, the Democrats, the people who look differently than me, the people who think differently than me, the homeless people who annoy me when I drive by them, my in-laws, my kids, the people I go to work with. Thank God I'm not like them or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. Hear that. What self-righteousness does is it drags you further away from God. It doesn't bring you closer. He stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It is through his humility that this tax collector is brought in to the kingdom. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humble, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Friends, let me just ask you a question tonight. How is it that you hear the scriptures? Are they about everyone else? Do they have something to say about you? Because what we see is when we know that they have something to say about us, repentance can break out, revival can break out. The other thing that I notice about repentance in this passage is that repentance seems to be our natural response to seeing God for who he truly is. Repentance is our natural response to seeing God for who he truly is. Think about the way that the story of Israel is told. You alone are God. You made the heavens. You give life to everything. You see the suffering. You lead people, you're forgiving, you're gracious, you're compassionate, you're slow to anger, you're abounding in love. It was when the Israelites saw the character of God clearly was also when they saw themselves clearly. When they saw God for what he truly is, it reminded them of all the times that they are not so quick to forgive. But in culture, what we tend to do with the places of sin and brokenness in our lives is we justify them, because we don't look at God, we look at everybody else. Real quotes, everyone watches porn, so does it really matter? Well, everyone's marriage, people sleep around, so does it really matter? Everyone skims a little off the top, so does it really matter? Everyone hates part of their family, so does it really matter? We so often, instead of looking to a holy and righteous God to compare and contrast our lives with, we look at other people who are just like us. We're just like each other. We're different, we have different stories, we have different reasons that have brought us to this moment, but we all have the same capacity to be bitter and hold grudges. We all have the same capacity to not lead but to follow apathetically. We all have the ability to look upon the suffering of the world and go, someone else will take care of it. But that's not who this God is. This kind of God is the God who looks at the suffering of people and he steps in and he intervenes. And when Israel sees that and compares and contrasts their character with it, they recognize that they are in need of deep healing. This is what happens. The last thing that I notice is simply this that repentance can have long-lasting effects when we are willing to be specific with God. Recognize what happens in Nehemiah over and over and over again. If you have a Bible, verse 16 will show this to you. They says, it says, but they, our ancestors, became what? Arrogant, stiff-necked, They did not obey your commands. They refused to listen. They failed to remember. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. Later on in the chapter it says this, our kings and our leaders, our priests and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Listen, recognize what Israel does is they get specific about the failures. They don't just turn to God and go, God, forgive me, a sinner. You know the stuff. They don't just go, God, we've messed up. We did some things, some stuff happened, said some words. But how often when we approach God after we've sinned or after we failed, we tend to be a little hesitant. We just speak to him in generalities. God you're so good and I'm so not. Would you would you fix me? You know the problem when we go to God with generalities is you can't fix things when you won't be specific about them. You can't deal with behavior if you won't be specific about it. I think about this with my kid. Those of you who have Kids in the room, you know how this works. My son, he's a three-year-old boy named Huck, and Huck has more energy than I know what to do with, than he knows what to do with, than anyone knows what to do with, which means he has no comprehension of boundaries. He just pushes up on people and throws his body around. He does all sorts of stuff. We also have a one-year-old little girl named Maisel who's just like starting to learn how to walk. We think she knows how to walk. She's just stubborn, so she won't do it. But every time she'll be standing up, my son will, like, be playing around, and he'll walk over and accidentally, like, step on her foot, which tears are induced, the world is ending, you know how this works. And we'll grab him, we'll bring him over, and we'll say, Hey, Huck, can you say sorry to your sister? He'll go, Yes. Sorry, Maisie. I'll go, Can you tell her what you're sorry for? Um. (laughs) Because. And I'm like, you have no idea what you're saying sorry for. You're simply saying sorry because you think that your dad expects it of you. I'm sure none of us have ever operated that way with God. God, um, sorry. So we'll take Huck, we'll take him over to his sister and we'll say, can you say to him, can you say to her, I'm sorry for stepping on your toes. He'll go, Maisie, I'm sorry for stepping on your toes on your toes and the whole room applauds and it's a big celebration. Why do we do that as parents? Because we have this inkling of hope that maybe the behavior will stop. We have this deep wish and desire that maybe one day he will just get that you don't step on your sister's feet. And as Jesus says so often in the gospels, how much more does our Father in heaven do that with us. When we come to God with the specificity of our sin, things can be healed. Bondage can be broken. Chains can actually hit the floor. Do you get what I'm getting at here? So friends, where are the places in your life that you have chosen to ignore and neglect sin and just vaguely apologize to God? To just go to him and go, God, I, huh, I'm a sinner. You get it. Here's the thing. Because friends, your idolatry of money will never be healed if you don't call it that. Your addiction to whatever will never be healed until you call it an addiction. Guys in the room, your anger issues will never be turn into peace and gentleness if you don't call it what it is. If we don't call gossip, gossip, we'll continue to be people who talk poorly about others behind their backs. Now here's the deal. I think there's a real good reason why we're vague with God. And with this, the worship team can begin to make their way back up front. I think there's a real obvious reason that we are, but it's going to require some of us to be honest in this room tonight. The only reason that we would not be specific with God about the places we have failed is if we are not totally sure what he will do with us when we are. I know that's true for me. There's only one good reason why you wouldn't be specific with a God who is holy and good, and it's if you are not sure if he is in fact holy and good. So we approach him with vague generalities instead of telling him the places that we have fallen short. And if this is true for you tonight, friend, one, you're not the only one. You're also not the only one throughout history because there's a line in this moment of confession. It's Nehemiah 9, verse 33. It simply says this, in all that has happened to us, this is talking about God, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Hear those words. Those are words about the God that we worship. That in all that has happened to us, in all the places of failure, this is why they recast their story in the midst of this, in all the places where sin has run rampant in our lives, in all the places where sin is still holding on to us, we may have acted wickedly, but our God has acted faithfully. Our God has acted faithfully. What that means is that when Israel came to him with their specific failures, you know what God didn't do? Oh my gosh, I'm shocked. I'm so surprised. And then boot them out of creation. You know what he does every time? Come on in. I'm safe. You can trust me. I've been faithful then, I'll be faithful now. You can trust me. The lie that the enemy tells us is that he can't be trusted, which only leads us to shame. This is what happens in the garden. Adam and Eve sin, God shows up. Adam and Eve said, we hid because we were naked and God said, who told you that? Why are you hiding? You don't need to hide from me. So friends, what I believe to be true is that there are some of us in this space tonight who the spirit has tilled the soil and has softened it for us this evening and you're recognizing the places of brokenness and sin in your life that you simply need to go to God with. And so what I wanna do is invite all of us to stand where we are. And what we're gonna do corporately, because this is what Israel did, they recognized that the failures and the grace of God, the failures of humanity and the grace of God were not meant to be experienced in isolation alone, but that we have the privilege to come as a tribe and as a family before God tonight and lay those things down. So what we're gonna do is say the prayer of confession. This has been said over hundreds of years in the church as a way for us to realign ourselves with the good life that God has for us. So friends, these words are gonna be on the screen. Would you say them with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. Men And friends, it is with that confession that we now approach the table. The space through all of cosmic history that humanity has been invited to as a reminder that even in the midst of their failures, God has brought them home. Friends, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. Would you take that piece of bread and would you break it? He broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Every time you eat, would you do this in remembrance of me, remembering that God, in the midst of our deepest failures, has sent his son Jesus to us and he keeps coming to us. Friday night, would you take and would you eat? That same night, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. A covenant is a promise, friends, and God doesn't break his. And his promise is that what has happened through the cross is you have been brought in and made right in a never ending, eternal way with God. It can never change. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink it, would you do it in remembrance of me? Friday night, would you drink? And now let's simply respond in worship. Hands open, ears open, hearts open to the God who is looking to heal us. Let's simply respond by singing to him tonight.
1: Give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. Give us clean hands and give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to Let's sing that again. Give, give us, us clean hands. hands, would you give us, give us pure hearts? hearts. sang this song earlier. Let's just sing it again as, as we're finishing up tonight, just saying this is the truth of who we are as a people. It's what we hold on to right here. Christ is my firm foundation. He's the rock on which I stand. And everything around me shaking, And I've never been more glad that I put my faith in Jesus cause he's never let me down he's faithful through generations so why would he fail now Safe with you, I'm gonna make it through.
2: Incredible night. Amen. I'm glad y'all were here. Thank you so much, Rory, for being with us tonight. Incredible. Um, Again, join us for First Wednesday, this upcoming Wednesday, if y'all can make it. Sign up for baptisms if you are interested. And if you are new, new new-ish, have questions, just want to hang out, come hang out with me and Vincent in the back after the service, okay? Our prayer team will be here after the service. So if you need prayer, if you want someone to partner with you and agree with you about repentance and the things of the Lord, um, our prayer team will be down here. But if you wouldn't mind holding out your hands, I would love to bless you on your way out. So, Lord, I pray that you would bless my friends. Shine your face upon them. Be gracious to them, Lord. Turn your face to them as they turn back to you. And may you give them peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Good to see y'all, and we'll see you next week.